again to the hot box back in the lab yeah one thing i noticed that we never do is say each other's names at the beginning and introduce uh the people that are on the podcast so i'm seth i'm here with nathan thank you for saying my name while i was ripping the bomb you're good i was buying some time a little bit really appreciate that yeah um yeah i'm at trillmore girls on twitter seth is at asap sunscreen mm-hmm and we, what do we do? We talk about media. We talk about cinema. Mm-hmm. We hang out in the box like Roddy Rich. <laughs> like Roddy Rich, like Richard Kelly. As we've been doing this show for like a year now, basically. Uh, <coughs> um, I don't know. When I say hot box the cinema, in my mind, I somehow envision this like physical place like the octagon. Mm-hmm. You know, or something just like it's a state of mind. It's a it's a literal space. Yeah, that's where we go. We both took our private jets. We got we got tested beforehand. Just hanging out. <laughs> all yeah. my friends, all my closest friends got tested. We're just yeah. vibing. We rented a cabin and we just locked in and recorded some great, great podcasts. This is our our cabin series. So uh, this, yeah, this is the real bony Vare shit mm-hmm. right here. The real Taylor Swift folklore on the beat shit. Yeah. Um. So what? Uh, <laughs> what cinema have you been hotboxing with lately? What have you been consuming? What kind of media? What are you on lately? Uh, I was for a little while. It was after I watched Rancho Notorious. I never really had like a Fritz Lang kick. I'd only seen really like M. I think. Mm-hmm. And then I watched Rancho Notorious and after kind of struggling to really like connect with a whole lot of like my own little viewing projects and stuff that ended up like resulting in like a 10 movie just streak. Uh, and I'll nobody's ever said it before about Fritz Lang, but he's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I'll dare to say it, too. I'll dare to mm-hmm. back you up there if anybody wants to challenge that man knows some some systems some structure, yeah. some architecture. Yeah. It's all there. I, I still have a bunch of his like German movies to watch. I mainly just watch like his Hollywood period. Um, you know, a few of the war movies, few of the noir movies, um, a few of like the later Technicolor ones. But I haven't really seen that many of his German movies. I still haven't watched Metropolis because I found out that that DJ Jeff Mills 
um did like a live score for it and he released like an album but it's only like 60 minutes and i was trying mm-hmm. to find like an actual like maybe a fan project or something like that that used that because i mm-hmm. was like interested in especially a movie like that like a techno score or something like that to kind of bring it like further uh or maybe not like timeless but like just i don't know connect it with like future periods and stuff like that. yeah yeah i mean i I kind of wonder like what cut of the movie he would have scored to because i know you know there's the like 1980s uh giorgio moroder executive produced yeah cut that's like only 80 or 90 minutes long i think you know and, a truncated version of that movie which already has like multiple cuts and iterations and parts were lost and then refound but that's like you know was was kind of what you were saying with like trying to place this futuristic movie with a soundtrack that also feels futuristic you know he was doing that with like new wave artists in the 80s which of course feels more kind of like retro futuristic now but um, exactly uh but also when i was like looking for special versions and stuff i saw that somebody has made their own fan version called kid m which is a cut of the movie with yeah with kid a playing on it which also seems very retro futuristic that's that's too Um, much i mean you know i've done some shit like that on my own like uh every time i've watched man with a movie camera i've like put a different three six mafia album over it um just because like i don't know i find it works really well like because the cutting in that movie is so fast and you've got a lot of imagery of like hands moving and like mechanisms and so i feel like the kind of like the just kind of like the hard-hitting sort of like drums uh and the really sort of like precise kind of like drum machine beats of of three six mafia like time really well with the cutting in that movie Mm -hmm. and then I also wanted to watch it just so that because I found out there was this anime remake of it by that's directed by Rintaro, who directed like the X movie and some oh other God. stuff like that. And I was like, I want to see what this like 90s anime Metropolis looks like. Mm-hmm. At least I think it was in the 90s or maybe it was like turn of the millennium time. Um, but I mean, beyond that, haven't really watched a whole lot. Uh, besides, I guess, Mank, which we're going to talk about later today. And then I watched the game to finish up David Fincher's filmography of stuff that I hadn't seen. What about you? You know, I've been, um, like you said, you know, you were trying to do some little viewing projects and struggling to connect with with different uh, avenues of viewing. You know, I think I, I probably talked about on previous episodes, I can't really remember now, um, but I also have tweeted a lot about, and I also uh, talked about it on a bonus episode of our good friend's extended clip. Um, but, you know, I was on that big Oliver Stone kick for a while, went through like his entire filmography and a couple movies he wrote. And then after that, I was just like... S- lost in the wilderness you know like yeah. jesus 40 days 40 yeah. nights you're vibeless searching yeah searching for some kind of vibe exactly it you know that's why jesus went into the desert because he was like vibes vibes in jerusalem vibes in nazareth that shit is off yeah. i need to go out go joshua tree with it cleanse my soul do some peyote oh de- decalcify decolonialize that third eye mm-hmm. um you know, just do some Travis Scott shit. Uh, that's what Jesus was doing in the desert. Anyways, that's how I felt searching for something new to sustain me visually. Um, really, the only thing that I've like really, really 
loved, I guess, that I've seen recently, I feel like, um, is the HBO show How To with John Wilson and the short films of John Wilson, um, which like I could talk about it all day, so I'll try not to. But it's just this like amazing um, he basically the premise of his films and also the show is like they start as kind of tutorials, like how to split a check or how to make small talk or how to clean a pan. Um, and he's based in Queens and he's just this kind of like seemingly like very awkward or, you know, just sort of like meek, shy, like quiet guy who just walks around all day observing life with a video camera. So they always start from these kind of simple conceits, but then they expand into something a lot more existential and philosophical. And he meets these strange people uh, with fascinating interests. It's executive produced. The show is executive produced by Nathan Fielder. So it has some of that sort of like both the kind of like sensitivity of, of Nathan for you, but also that sort of like uncanniness where you're not entirely sure if a situation is staged or simulated or not. And I mean, there's definitely times with John Wilson's work where you can tell like, you know, he like will meet somebody in the show and start talking to them. And you can kind of discern that like he met this person in another context and was like, I think your, your whole deal is really interesting. Like, do you want to be a part of this? Do you want to sort of create a situation, create this kind of story around it and facilitate us meeting basically in a visual form? You kind of get that idea, but I feel like a lot of it is authentic. You know, a lot of it is like just New York scenes, like people watching weird, funny signs, um, just like kind of like observing the city. And it's like got a very gentle, punny visual sense of humor, but it's also super clever and super sharp. Yeah. I don't live in New York and I've seen one of the short films he recommended, but also I could totally see like that, like slightly documentarian, Mm -hmm. slightly antagonistic, but also like kind of like, I don't know. There's like a warmth to it that I could see is playing as nostalgia these days. Totally. I mean, the last episode of the show is actually like made at the start of the the pandemic and starts to kind of get into the pandemic. Um, And obviously watching like the first few episodes and watching his short films, I think it's, you're very keenly aware of just like how the city specifically, but just life in general everywhere has changed um, and how many of, you know, these, these things might not even exist anymore. Um, so there is a kind of sadness to it, but I also feel like, you know, he, he goes to some very real sort of bleak places, you know, and gets into like the hostility of a lot of architecture here or like, you know, even like police brutality and so, and, you know, not in a, like really like on kind of focus way, you know, it's not the whole sort of dominating subject matter, but it sort of creeps in just because cops are everywhere in New York. Um, so there is a sort of social commentary to it too. Um, the, the short film I recommended to you that you watched is called the road to Magnus And he sort of takes this like Sim city game simulation, the like perfect game of Sim city, which is this city called Magnus that someone designed, which is like, I guess my understanding of it is that like in the terms of like winning the game, like, you know, getting the most points, it's like this perfect city. And it's just basically like a replicating pattern of skyscrapers and there's like no roads. It's not really like, useful to people as an actual city but it wins the game so he kind of takes that as a metaphor for like new york's changes and how new york is so many times becoming inhospitable to the people who live there and becoming like 
you know, it, biz, the interest of business and capital are trying to make the city a place for buildings, a place for vehicles, but not a place for people who actually live there. So anyways, highly recommended John Wilson, the works of John Wilson. Um, you know, I guess the other thing that we have both been thinking a lot about, which we talked, we've talked several times in the past about, uh, but I saw it because the HD leak is out in those places, those dark corners that you know where to look for. Tenet. Mm-hmm. Nolan went sicko mode, I think. I've been a lifetime skeptic of the man. Harder on him than I even am on myself. But I got to say, I was in it for this one. I was Tenet to win it. Yeah, I saw it at a drive-in. When it was, I guess, it had a theatrical run. I drove over a state border. Had to cross the border to see Tenet at a drive-in. Sneaking sneaking across state lines. Yeah, bringing in my contraband White Claw, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I, I like, in talking to you about it, I've been convinced that I think maybe just like getting the, like the 4K Ultra HD version and watching that on my like big TV is probably better than seeing it at a drive-in yeah in kentucky listening to the sound over the radio because so much of what people criticized when only that like handy cam leak came out was people criticized the sound mixing in that movie um which may have resulted from the camera that it was being recorded on uh but also like yeah. listening to it on a car radio was was just about the worst it was a whole game of turn up and turn back down depending on if there's talking or if there's action yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of it was aided to for me, like having subtitles on. I I just felt like I didn't really have any of the issues at all that people complained about, which is something that I've definitely felt with Nolan's work before. I have felt like there's been sometimes like inscrutability in dialogue or or sound mixing that's just generally weird. But I honestly feel like a lot of that in the past has had to do with his sort of use of music and the reliance of like the orchestral bombast of Hans Zimmer. And uh, Hans Zimmer is thankfully not nowhere near this movie. And you've got Childish Gambino producer uh, Ludwig Göransson uh, or, or whatever his name is uh, doing this like electronic score, which I feel like just totally changes the kind of rhythm and momentum and experience of like what Nolan is doing. Yeah, because so many of the scores in his movies before had had kind of been these like droning tones that kind of tell you the emotion Mm-hmm. of the scene um, and kind of like lay out like this, just like blueprint of like intensity and like heart palpitations when you're supposed to feel this and all that stuff. The, the, the really like, you know, like the, the big criticism people, drop cinema, literally like trailer movie, you know, trailer music cinema. Like um, the, I feel like one of the big criticisms people go to with Nolan is like, Oh, that's constant exposition. It's constant explanation. And I feel like the change in music sort of reflects a change in how you're given information as a viewer, because in his previous works, when you have that really guided score, it feels like these dumps of data and dumps of information, like the sort of like aggressive that are just like pushing you to feel something. Whereas in this one, it's just this like ongoing repetitive 
kind of like forward moving electronic score. And so that feels like the rhythm of information in this movie where, yeah, you're constantly being given all this information, but it just like keeps going. It's just like at this steady pace that I found incredibly watchable and like, sure. A lot of like pieces fitting together and sometimes didn't make sense, but I was just like consistently amazed and impressed at just the sort of like audacity of it all for lack of a better word. Um, And and just the conception of it. And also a lot of the dialogue is just fucking insane. Yeah, totally. I love Robert Pattinson's character just like explaining. Just, I don't know. It's just a lot of people just like saying really vague sentences. No one really actually like, I feel like communicates anything. And in part it's because like the whole movie is kind of just like documenting this like, this like whisper network. Yeah. Of, I don't know, government secrets and things um and you know scientific secrets we won't really get into spoilers with this i don't think but yeah i mean the movie itself visually is kind of like i think a whisper network is a great way to put it because i feel like you're in all of these locations that aren't like connected together just like all these hotel rooms and yachts and airports and free ports and warehouses and just all these like disjointed liminal spaces that are just sort of like connected together and you're not really shown like how you're getting from one place to another. It's just all kind of like assumed and spoken in hushed whispers and you don't see a lot of the strings behind it. Um, And people just say shit like we live in a twilight world and like ignorance is our ammunition and you're not shooting the bullets, you're catching them. And just like all these just like insane pieces of just like galaxy brain poetry um yeah it's wild i was just jaw dropping like like dying at so many things that were said out loud in this movie yeah and you you mentioned the a lot of like the settings and everything Mm -hmm. in the movie uh and in part it kind of reminds that we've also like off this podcast talked about how like the color palette of the movie and some of like the action scenes of the movie feel very much kind of like the a little bit like call of duty and other kind of yeah. like major like action games where it's just very muted color palette. Um, but also it reminds me of like things like I've talked about both these before on this podcast, but like Olivier Assayas' Boarding Gate and Kanan Lynch 2, uh, which both of these are kind of like turn of like the 2000s to the 2010s media products mm-hmm. where the setting is always... Um, this the setting is kind of like discrete locations um you're like running through a city kind of anywhere can turn into a battlefield um and essentially what it's showing is like uh like kind of like the front line of like the new frontier of capitalism Mm -hmm. and you're kind of like seeing these like discrete places uh where kind of anything can turn into a place where a collision happens whether that's like a rival gang or whether that is like um you know, just like a a cash only network or something like that, uh, that your character is kind of interrupting. And that's where a lot of tenant takes place as well, because you have free ports, uh, you Mm -hmm. have airports, you have a lot of like, I don't know, spaces of exchange and transaction. Yeah, but also a lot of like the extra judicial like properties that come along with that. It's very much a labyrinth. I think that Borges would have been a fan of this movie. My boy, boy, Borges shouts out, uh, uh, this next bong rip I do will go out to you. Um, I was riffing too hard. I forgot what I was going to say. Um, oh, the scene that really made this click for me is like, I think it was like the second scene in the movie where um, 
Martin Donovan, uh, star of many Hal Hartley movies, um, and just I think a really one of the great underrated American actors right now, uh, shows up as like John David Washington's like CIA handler. And first of all, what he says was like eye-opening to me. He's like, you know, I'm giving you a gesture in combination with a word and then puts his hands together. And I was like, that's the definition of cinema, baby, right there. Gestures and words combining. That's montage. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say Martin Donovan in his IRL life. Like um, I did follow, unfollow him on Twitter because he was, putting some weird stuff about COVID out there, but he is like, he is a comrade um, to the point that like he feuds with John Cusack on Twitter, John Cusack, you know, noted Chapo trap house fan. He feuds (laughs) with John Cusack about not being left enough. Like Martin Donovan is like, you're not like really a communist. Like you're not really with it. You know, he's posting about like South America and like coups and the pink tide and shit. So I was kind of just like, whoa, okay, Martin Donovan is in this movie about like the CIA and like a temporal cold war as they describe it. Um, Then he probably like sees something in this and beyond just a check, you know, to show up in this like one scene. And I was like, this is honestly perfect casting. And I feel like, I don't know, that's just like, I don't know. Nolan did it. It's crazy. I feel I I, I didn't know I was going to be so so on board for this movie, but yeah. it's really mentally stuck with me. I mean, I don't know if it will end up being like my number one best movie of the year or whatever it might, but it's definitely like I've devoted way more mental energy to it in the past week than like pretty much anything else that has come out this year. Yeah, I I mean that's exactly what happened when I saw it at the drive-in. I walked out, or I guess I drove out, kind of like not a fan of it and then for about a week i just thought about how it annoyed me Mm -hmm. and it ended up being like kind of like a productive annoyance i haven't revisited it on this latest like release of it but yeah it did like just make me think about the things that it didn't have that i was expecting or maybe just like i don't know it just made me think a lot about the different kind of notions that I'd brought into it, which I know that people that don't like this movie probably think that's the most annoying sentence in the world to say about this movie because they think it's boring as fuck. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of a, I sort of made this joke to you that it was like Nolan's Batman versus Superman, but you and I saw Batman versus Superman together when that came out in theaters. And I feel like we had kind of a similar experience where we basically like build ourselves into liking that movie after like a week of like, like like weird like weirdly like kind of arduous like complicated debate and conversation and Mm -hmm. like i just remember both of us like kept talking about that movie and like kept talking to other people and like friends about that movie and stuff yeah through the process of kind of like explaining and unpacking it eventually i think we both realized that we actually liked it and we were just sort of so caught off guard maybe by what it was doing and it was so different from those sort of expectations that we went in with that uh like immediately walking out the reaction felt negative but over time we came to saw the value and i feel like it's kind of a similar sort of you know film muddy blockbuster like kind of not understood and obviously it has this like complicated release and everything that has affected its reception i think there's this uh this telling allegory not allegory a telling a little anecdote 
from that screening, which I remember walking out and there was a father and like young kid, like eight year old kid walking out in front of us. And the dad was just explaining to the kid. We missed what the kid said that the dad was responding to. But he was like, well, sometimes movies just aren't good. And he was just like giving him this life lesson. I, re- I remember the kid too, like being so confused and distraught by Superman dying. Like he, I just, rem- I think I remember the kid just being like, that wasn't supposed to happen. Like I, like I didn't, he was just like, I just remember, I feel like he was just like, I didn't want him to die. Like, why did that happen? Like, and his dad was just kind of like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to like, I didn't, you know, he was just sort of seemed very dumbfounded by the movie too. And they were just kind of like, mm. they were both just being confronted with a lot of their own expectations, but at different levels. Um, different ages genre expectations yeah so anyways i mean that's a lot of chat about about our our viewing and it's not really directly related to what we wanted to talk about today but um you know we can i figure we can trans we can then segue transition into the topic of, of today's episode which is stepping into the Mankverse. yeah we're we're in the extended cinematic universe of Citizen Kane now. Yeah, the Orson Welles CU, the OWCU. Mm-hmm. And which is all being funded, it seems, by Netflix, aside from this most recent, like, Wells Hopper documentary. Yeah, I was kind of, I didn't really look into, like, I was, when we were making notes for this, I, w- I was thinking about that documentary, and I didn't really look into, like, the distribution of it, but it does seem like something that Netflix would pick up, because pretty much everything I've heard about it is that, like, it's not even really a movie, it's more just kind of like a DVD featurette, almost. Yeah, it seems just like a conversation that's, like, a podcast, big for enthusiasts, and nobody else. Yeah, which, which I feel like, you know, they didn't really push the other side of the wind very hard. And I feel like that was just sort of like what happened with the other side of the wind, where it was just like, this is them like doing their sort of duty to cinephiles who complain on the internet about Netflix not caring about film history. They're just like, we'll throw you this little million, couple million dollars uh, and, and just kind of have it there in our database for you. Yeah. Uh, but Mank, you know, it's directed by david fincher written by his his late father the script was written in like the 90s um and this is part of like david fincher's i guess contract with netflix to make several different projects with them like house of cards and mine hunter and now this Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a very i mean to put it blunt it's a weird movie like just the whole kind of every element of the project And I guess, you know, it it was sort of billed as like kind of a tribute to his father, you know, since, like you said, his dad wrote it uh, many, many years ago. But, you know, you don't really detect a lot of that kind of personal feeling in the material. Like it's not really about, a, I don't know, maybe there's some like daddy issues or something, but it's not really about like a paternal relationship or anything like that. Um, I saw somebody tweeted, uh, I think it was like Peter Labuza or somebody like, um, that like 
you know, he should have done it like Gemini Man and just like taken a script from the 90s and like kept the 90s-ness intact. Like you both, I feel like, can really detect that this was originally written many years ago and then like things were shoved in to make it kind of relevant over the past few years. Yeah, I mean, the main thing I feel like that there are two kind of main parts that adapt weirdly, one of which is his editing style. Um, he tries to use this, you know, his very like cold, precise digital. Yeah, like the digital uh, editing that, you know, is very like heavy handed, but results in kind of like a breezy, forceful viewing experience he tries to like use that but i feel like that does not Mm -hmm. adapt at all to this like story structure or even just like the way people talk in it and the other thing that that didn't really adapt the best to me was like they try to really bring it into modern times Mm -hmm. um with a lot of like allegorizing about the you know the 30s studio structure uh production process the politics of it. They have Upton Sinclair in this movie played by Bill Nye. Basically, and basically Upton Sinclair is like playing Bernie Sanders, essentially. Yeah, he's like rallying outside of MGM. Um, there's a whole like election night watching the votes come in kind of thing. Um, and I don't know, they do a lot of effort to try to like bring this, you know, bring kind of modern politics into the fore. You know, it's a movie about an election, about voting. Um, It's a movie about, like, exposing corruption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that probably what I feel like what happened was is, like, you know, Fincher got this script out of the drawer in, like, 2016 or 2017 or something. And he was like, okay, I got to update it. And he so he's reading the script and then he goes and he rewatches Citizen Kane. And he's like, whoa, this movie through today's eyes is about fake news you know it's about i mean william randolph hearst himself did famously say you give me the photographs i'll give you the war exactly like manufactured the mexican-american war yeah um and so that's like i totally feel like that's kind of what happened um you know there's this whole sort of subplot like the the middle third of the movie is about mank Herman, which, you know, we haven't even said who Mank is, but I assume if you're listening to a cinema podcast, like, and you're going out of your way and you've been listening to us, you're like, you probably know a little bit of, con- you have a little bit of context for what this movie is, but Mank is Herman J. Mankiewicz, the screenwriter of, of course, Citizen Kane. Uh, and so Mank sort of gets wrapped up in this uh, effort by MGM and Irving Thalberg to produce these newsreels, these fake newsreels um, for the uh, Republican candidate whose name I can't recall, who ends up winning and becoming governor of California. And they're sort of like, you know, like the newsreel that opens Citizen Kane, they're in the very recognizable style of newsreels. They have interviews with people. But as we hear, some of the people are actors. It's all kind of staged meant to make Upton Sinclair look like this scary communist, all this stuff. Yeah, anti-American. Yeah, even though Mink really supports Upton Sinclair, he still works on, uh, you know, sort of aids in this. And, like, the director of the shorts is also, like, a big Upton Sinclair performance, uh, 
supporter. I don't know why I said performer supporter. And he's like, but he's like, oh, I just want a chance at directing. You know, I want a job. I want to move up. So I'm going to take on this job I'm ideologically opposed to. And he ends up killing himself because he feels so bad. feels like he caused the loss of Upton Sinclair. Um, so yeah, I feel like all of that is just being like, it's fake. It's look at this fake news. Like, you know, or I mean, maybe you could read it in a little bit leftier way where it's like, I don't know, maybe it's like a metaphor for like the DNC screwing over Bernie or something. But I feel like that's still a very boring way to read this era, this material Citizen Kane. You know, they don't even mention uh, the biggest fake news stunt Orson Welles was involved in the War of the Worlds yeah. scandal. You know, if you want to make a movie about fake news, make a movie about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the movie is like, the the thesis i guess that it's kind of based on is this idea kind of promoted by pauline kale with her essay raising cane but kind of this like reapproach of raising cane in like the 70s and 80s in which people started contesting orson welles's role as a creator um and crediting herman mankiewicz with most of the screenwriting of the movie and and ultimately kind of framing orson welles as not only you know this kind of like mastermind magician illusionist but also kind of a creative theft or yeah. creative thief yeah and i feel like within the context of of wh- why pauline kale was sort of interested in that and pushing back against the image of wells and his role in citizen kane um i you know it was just sort of case study 101 and sort of her pushback against Andrew Saris and the rise of auteur theory and auteurism. And so, you know, this was her way of saying like, you know, let's look at like all of the collaborators involved in this process. And, and yeah, I, I think the issues of, of auteurism and stuff, it's, it's complicated and, and all that. But I do think that, um, you know, there's been a lot of very interesting writing from the other side, pushing kind of back against that anti Wells narrative, um, you know, a lot of stuff by Jonathan Rosenbaum, also a, a lot by the Wells historian, Joseph McBride. Um, and he just wrote something on his website, Wellsnet. <laughs> Written very 90s.com right there. I know it's such a blog. Like the email address on the site is like contactwellsnet at gmail.com. So this essay is called Mank and the Ghost of Christmas Future. And I haven't actually read the quite the whole thing yet. Um, but I think it does a really good job at sort of like summing up a lot of the reasons for anti-Wells sentiment. And I think what kind of undergirds a lot of it, and I don't think that Pauline Kale and people sort of of her group and, and of the same mind as her were, were like conscious necessarily of this, that they were sort of feeding into this. But I do feel like, a, a, like as McBride puts it, like, the, the sort of anti-Wells narrative and sentiment, at least early on, had to do with kind of two things. The first being Wells's sort of general independence and like insistence upon creative independence. Um, you know, he had also this kind of financial independence that most people in Hollywood did not and could fund his own work. And that at the time was was really frowned upon. I honestly feel like you maybe see the same kind of reception with like George Lucas and the prequels. I think uh, that's kind of like, I don't know, like it's seen sort of as this like almost arrogant thing to like make a Hollywood movie, but like outside of Hollywood and to sort of say like, I can do it better than you. Mm hmm. 
Um, and I think Wells being somebody who didn't come up the traditional Hollywood way, you know, who was like an outsider to the medium and then came it, came to it and did it better than a lot of people, I think probably didn't endear him to a lot of people in Hollywood. Um, so there's the independence part of it. But the other part of it is, is just like his continual sort of political radicalism, which I think maybe is an element of Citizen Kane that has dulled over time. I think Mink tries to bring it to the surface a little bit, but misses the mark um, with its focus on the relationship between Mank and Hearst. But obviously, you know, William Randolph Hearst is like, you know, was a huge fucking deal. And so Wells going after him in such a, you know, even though it's not literally a, a the movie of Hearst, it's pretty obviously about him. And that's what everybody says it's about. Like that, I think, put a kind of target on his back that was sort of reinforced by conservative tendencies in Hollywood and the U.S., Anyways, that was a spiel, but film history, baby. Yeah. With this movie, though, I don't know, especially with like the way that it's structured, it's kind of like between this like bedridden screenwriting session and then the memories that are feeding into these different moments of the screenplay. And it almost kind of like we're talking about the pacing of it and how how lax it can be at times mm -hmm. and just like laid back, which is at odds a lot of times with the way everything is edited and structured, but also like the way that like flashback um, and then moment that inspires is set up ends up like, I don't know. It seems like some kind of like explainer video for like why citizen Kane, you know, is the way it is where yeah. each character came from, like the real world inspiration for each thing. And to me, it just ends up like doing for something that is like trying to demystify Citizen Kane and demystify Orson Welles, it ends up just like, I don't know, I feel like it ends up like making it more holy than it was to start with. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's weird is like, even though it does, I think I think you're right. It doesn't really like glorify the like process of writing it like it doesn't make it look like it was this difficult arduous creative thing besides his like alcoholism and and being bedridden like it, it he doesn't have that hard of a time writing it other than the fact that people are like oh maybe you shouldn't put this person in or portray this person this way people kind of try to like nudge him along the way it doesn't really seem that hard to write citizen kane and he, it's just like it's just mank remembering shit like yeah it seems like most of the personal toil of writing citizen kane is just remembering stuff and regretting stuff yeah it's just living a life you know yeah. it's not the years it's the mileage um <laughs> But the thing is, is so in the kind of buildup to this movie, you know, people were like had pitchforks out for David Fincher, both because of the look from the of the movie based off of trailers, which going into it, I was like ready to be a make defender because everybody was like, oh, it's like sh shot in digital black and white. It doesn't look like an actual movie from that time. You have these fake cue marks and fake grain. Like, how dare you? And I was like, well, Fincher is this like hyper digital stylist. You know, he mm -hmm. has a very distinct look. I really, I trust him for the most part. Um, yeah. And I was like, if he wants to shoot a movie in kind of weird looking black and white, like I would, I'm down for it to try it out. Um, but ultimately the movie ends up looking pretty dim and, and uh, it's kind of a mess uh, and, and really blurry. But the other thing that people had it out for is, you know, he was sort of talking a little bit of smack about Orson Welles in interviews and stuff or not, I don't know, not really like he didn't really have it out for Welles, but was sort of poking at the cult, I think a little bit. 
and the sort of mystical image of him as this great artist. And people were upset about that. But I feel like the feud or any kind of beef between them isn't even that big a part of the movie. Like early on, there's this sort of sinister, like his Manx manager is like, you know, are you sure you don't want to take on screen credit? And the music starts to get a little intense and it's like, Ooh, Orson's like doing something. And then at the end of the movie, they have this like quick, just kind of falling out. And like, you know, they're, sparring after the Oscars or whatever over credit. And then the movie just ends. And, but it doesn't even seem like they're like, they never talked again or whatever, but it's just like the relationship isn't really that much of a part of the movie, honestly. Yeah. Which I get, I mean, the movie is, is maybe trying to like, I don't know. I'd like Orson Welles is pretty absent for most of the movie, which I guess maybe that just directly relates to his absence from the movie's portrayal of that screenwriting process. I don't know. It, it is also just kind of bizarre to see some like a thing that's about Citizen Kane with with such little Orson Welles in it at all. I mean, I think something that was very telling and speaks to this sort of glossification, glorification still of Citizen Kane and Welles, even if the movie is trying says it's trying to undo that. Um, there's this tweet from a, a writer who, who wrote an article about Mank, I think, for the New York Times magazine. Um and he says, this didn't make my peace, but Fincher hired Maurice LaMarche, premier Orson Welles impersonator and the voice of the brain from Pinky and the Brain to read every line of Welles' dialogue in Mank. And they gave a recording to Tom Burke to help shape his performance as Welles, which just made total sense based on my perception of Welles and Tom Burke's performance in this movie, which just feels like incredibly uncanny valley, like... Because you can tell he's trying to sound like Wells and doing this kind of impression of him, but it doesn't totally sound like Wells. You can tell it's supposed to sound like Wells, but it doesn't sound like Wells because Wells has such a distinctive voice. And it doesn't really look like him that much either, but you get the sense that he's like supposed to and just everything feels off. And so it's like rendering him as like, you know, a wax figure, basically, which is kind of what a celebrity impersonator is the living, breathing version of. But also saying it's trying to kind of demystify and poke at him, but it's not doing that. Yeah. I thought that the, like the voice I thought was like fine enough, but I feel like the physical presence was very lacking. Like the scenes where he was actually like shown um, and given like stuff to do in the scene is like, I don't know, just felt very flat to me. Yeah, totally. And I think like, I don't know, it's, you know, you, you mentioned like Wells's physical presence. And I think that's one of the things that's so, like distinctive about him both as a performer and as a persona and why people like a lot of like both why people are drawn to him but also some of the criticism something that mcbride points out in his piece is just like how obsessed americans are with orson welles's weight later in life i don't know like there's there's both like i think like this kind of unconscious like oh he just like became this like you know, overweight, like slovenly guy, you know, who is washed up or whatever, like that's the negative reception. And then there's like the positive, more recent sort of like memification of Wells as this like cuddly old, like grandfather figure who like always cuts through the bullshit and just like says it straight. I feel like those kind of like really, I don't know. There's just like so much, 
there's such a cult of like the physical presence of Orson Welles in addition to his voice. Yeah, well, I feel like a lot of people, especially in the past, would like mock his like weight and everything as a sign of like doing poorly because he's gone bankrupt so many times and because he's been betrayed by like the studio system so many times or whatever. But I mean, to me, part of like Orson Welles's persona that so many people gravitate toward is I feel like there's just this constant feeling of reclaiming Mm -hmm. that the cult of Orson Welles kind of gravitates toward most conversations about him revolve around after Citizen Kane. Um, Every movie since that first one is is talked about within this context of a masterpiece that was then meddled with or an unrealized masterpiece tampered, you know, missing reels from Magnificent Ambersons, things like that. And then it just kind of becomes like analyzing the rest of his life through this lens of bankruptcy and through this lens of betrayal. And then also, I mean, memeing like those commercials and the Transformers voice acting Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And I I, even just like yesterday, I feel like I saw going around again, the sort of like quotes of him talking shit about Woody Allen. Um, And I feel like there's this sort of like standum of Orson that even exists like it's informed by his movies but I feel like even people who haven't really gone very deeply into his work like gravitate towards him in the same way that like Martin Scorsese has become this kind of meme film Twitter figure even more so after his Marvel comments Um, and I think the same with like like the memeing of John Cassavetes all three of them are both like dudes rock figures uh but also they have this like they're both in and out of hollywood and and they're these like capital a artists who who tell it like it is and who say things potentially to the detriment of of deals or financing or or future business um but you know like i don't know it's kind of like i am someone who is very invested in auteurism and it's really informed a lot of what i how i interact with movies but there is that, you know, sort of like the the kind of like warped, mutated version of it where it's basically just like standing a director. And that's what a lot of people, when they negatively criticize like an auteurist mentality, I think what they criticize is that like warped version of it where you're just sort of being like treating the filmmaker as this like genius persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that can kind of happen with memes of Orson Welles. Yeah. It's interesting though, with like how he is kind of like seen in this modern context, especially with like, this is now the second or I guess maybe third project based around Orson Welles that Netflix has produced or at least finished and distributed. The other two being uh, the other side of the wind. They funded like the completed editing of that movie. And then also they have a documentary about it, both on their, on their platform. Uh, and then they also have a bunch of like old Hollywood stuff as well. Um, like a docu-series called five came back. That's about like Frank Capra and John Ford and, and other studio directors who mm-hmm. were, were hired by the government to make world war two films. Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple other examples I was thinking of too, of this way that like, you know, this is something we've talked about a lot in the past, you know, I think on like our World War One 1917 episode, especially, but this way that like Hollywood so often when it's trying to either introduce new technology, 
or when it's trying to introduce some kind of new way of distribution or business that people are unfamiliar with, it tries to legitimize that by recreating or otherwise associating itself with old Hollywood and early cinema. Um, so I think you definitely see that with Netflix's sort of like alliance with the state of Orson Welles. Um, and that documentary you mentioned uh, about Orson, the Love Me When I'm Dead, I think it's very interesting that that was made by the guy who made the Mr. Rogers documentary. Um, it just feels like similar kind of like fetishism of, of celebrities, the cultural figures a little bit. Yeah. And they have some other projects too. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, yeah. The, well, the, I was also going to say the interesting thing about Five Came Back is like when they put that out, I don't think they're on there anymore, but they put up a lot of the like propaganda films that were talked about in the documentary. Um, so you just had like, you know, you would be scrolling through the, the small classic section on Netflix and like up against like Adventures in Babysitting and like Clockwork Orange, you would have like john houston's let there be light about ptsd and like stuff like that so which is very weird and you know netflix gets criticized a lot because they're not trying to most of the time like be in the preservation or archivization game but it felt like that was their way of being like oh look like we do care about film history here's some like random ass american government films like on our service the other two recent examples i thought of of this kind of historiography that they're doing is uh, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood miniseries, which I didn't watch, but my understanding of it was that it was basically about like, you know, these kind of like young upstart, you know, aspiring actors. Um, but it's sort of like looking at a much more diverse group of people than you would normally associate maybe with Hollywood of the forties and fifties. Um, and it's, so it's trying to kind of like diversify the face of Hollywood while also at the same time, basically erasing the ra actual radical politics of Hollywood in that era. Um, and then the other one is this documentary disclosure, which is about like the representation of, of trans and non-binary people throughout cinema, um, and like gets into like DW Griffith and stuff, um, but I don't know. It's just like interesting to see Netflix like produce a documentary that's like trying to comment on D.W. Griffith while they're also sort of having this kind of like cagey relationship at large with most of film history. Yeah. And also that documentary is like a little bit weird because like they speak with like the, the Wachowskis about some of like their film projects and stuff. And also, I mean, they have that the the series with them, Sense8. But also, like, they started, like, making little, like, featurettes about, like, The Matrix as a trans allegory, which is a pretty well-trodden ground at this point. But they, like, don't credit Kale Keegan, who wrote the contemporary film director's book about the Wachowskis mm -hmm. and basically laid out this argument that Netflix then, like, reproduces verbatim. But it's weird to see Netflix, I guess, I mean, with Five Came Back, you see, like, how these filmmakers are kind of, like, making propaganda and it's weird to see Netflix start to like use these things to like propagandize a little bit about themselves as like the future of like film history and the future of like film preservation and things like that uh, through a history of like old Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, but it's weird to see them or I guess it makes a lot of sense to see them really gravitate around Orson Welles because of his kind of turgid history with the Hollywood system to begin with, where he is also seen as kind of this this outsider uh this this radical kind of creative person a disruptor uh, will, if you will 
yeah exactly a disruptor um and and someone who has these like ideas that aren't really accepted at the time but are ultimately the future damn that is a really good point how that like metaphorical alliance like kind of reinforces or tries to position netflix as like anti-establishment or like anti-hollywood and what they're doing as like radical instead of like union busting well and also i mean it's i don't really think streaming is radical yeah no no because this is i don't know that this isn't like a new idea at this point totally people have been streaming stuff for for over a decade now also it's just kind of weird because in viewing themselves as like these this proponent of like classical hollywood you already kind of mentioned kind of like an archive or digitizing role that they kind of promote for themselves Mm -hmm. um in very kind of like sparing categories but if you look at like what the preservation work they've done for like the other side of the wind that i feel like that movie is like fundamentally like altered from whatever orson wells like saw it as when he passed away yeah totally like i think that i mean in some ways like i don't even know if like can can that movie be credited to orson wells fully like i don't know i mean a lot of me you know i had a lot of frustrations with that movie and i part of me really wish that it had just been like released as like an archive dump of like footage and like the scenes that wells had already edited together himself and it just sort of existed as these pieces that like maybe people could put them together in different combinations, but just sort of like seeing the pieces as opposed to this like weird uncanny composite whole. But the interesting thing about this, like historiography work they're doing in regards to Wells is like, they don't have besides other side of the wind, they don't have his movies on their platform. You know, they're ensuring that like the memory of citizen Kane and the memory of Wells exists, but not like the actual like thing itself. Um, so in it, well, yeah, I mean, that's no, go ahead. That's the thing with, with most like modern streaming platforms is like a complete lack of like context and like curatorial oversight and like curatorial, uh, like forthrightness. And that's sort of the weird thing about Mank because it's, you know, it's in addition to like hillbilly elegy, which was a fart in the wind, um mank seems to be their really big like awards movie this year but it's also kind of like i guess maybe it's just like a feather trying to be a feather in their cap or something like that and it's like for a highbrow audience or something um but it's also kind of like for your average netflix subscriber what does this movie mean they don't know who mank is they may have may or may not have seen citizen kane probably not you know they're probably familiar with it based off of this reputation um they're maybe you know familiar in some way with orson wells but they probably don't have the context for this movie even though it's there on the home page yeah for me i mean the movie like my main like frustration with it it reminded me a little bit of like once upon a time in hollywood Mm -hmm. where i was like i feel like this movie is like engaging me but mostly because or the moments when i'm being engaged i think are just when it's talking about stuff I already know about. Yeah, yeah. It's talking about stuff I'm familiar with. And I don't know, just because I don't know, I'm interested in like film history or something like that. I just like know about this stuff. And it's, it's telling me a story about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting that this movie feels so like, so tied to like, 
Trump era <laughs> politics um, because I think a lot of uh, I think this leads us into sort of more philosophical discussion of like what Citizen Kane like as this kind of cultural status symbol. But I think there's this really great article from Sight and Sound magazine by the late, great Peter Wallen, film theorist and critic, one of my favorites, um, called Why Some Some Films Survive or Why Do Some Films Survive? Um, And there's like a kind of expanded version of this piece in like one of his books as a chapter. Um, But he basically is sort of asking like, you know, how do canons form? How do they change over time? How are they reinforced over time? And he does so by really methodically, almost scientifically looking at the sight and sound list that happens every 10 years um, and how the top 10 or just like the top 50 or whatever of those lists has changed over time. Um, And certain films and kinds of films, you know, were really popular in the early days of the magazine and have faded away over time. And others have like remained consistent. Other things have kind of emerged over time. And he spends a lot of time, of course, looking at Citizen Kane because that was the number one movie on the list for like years and years. Um, And it like worked its way up there. It didn't start off as the number one, but it's, you know, it's endured like few movies, you know, the Citizen Kane of, you know, that's an arbiter of like a medium, uh, you know, and the way people talk about Citizen Kane. Um, Shit. Let me look at the notes real quick because I lost my... uh, uh, thing. Well, basically, the kind of gist is that he says that like Citizen Kane has endured because it, ha- it in terms of like thematic interpretation, it has a sort of f- fluidity and flexibility that a lot of films don't. And one of the examples he looks at is like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and like other German expressionists and like even like some neorealist films where they were like very acclaimed early on high on the list. And they're still to this day recognized as like very historically important. And you might watch them in a class or like appreciate them kind of from a distance. But most people aren't like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is like the best film of all time because it's sort of just viewed in this one way as like the the start of German expressionism. This point, this important stylistic departure, doing something new. That's kind of the only way people think of that movie. Whereas Citizen Kane, he sort of lays out like every decade there's a new way that people think about it and look at it. You know, he says that Andre Bazan, because Citizen Kane was so innovative in its use of deep focus and and long, uh, long takes and and long shots, wide shots. I mean, um, you know, really letting the viewer like choose information and and kind of soak in a, a variety of visual data. Bazan characterizes it as like a realist film, whereas shout out again to my boy Borges. Um, Borges loved Citizen Kane because he saw it as this like labyrinth of dream logic. And those are two like fundamentally different viewings of the same text. Um, and so Wallen kind of supposes that like, you know, the movies that endure are those movies that are able to have that malleability. Um, and a movie like Mank, I don't think has that at all. You know, it's like both a parasite on Citizen Kane, but also a temporal parasite on like what's happening politically right now in such a dry way. Yeah. And like Citizen Kane also, I guess I don't, well, one thing I'll say about this Peter Wallen essay is that he like kind of takes a scientific approach to how like taste is formed Mm -hmm. and breaks it down to like academics, curators, programmers, archivists, enthusiasts, stuff like that. 
No mention of podcasters. Wow. We're being oppressed. Yeah. Not represented. But Citizen Kane, though, is like also this thing that I feel like, I don't know, this partially just comes from my experience with like games discourse and like games blogging and stuff. But in like the 2000s, when blogs were really like a big place where like that kind of criticism was happening. I mean, there was a huge kind of movement for like video games are art. Right. Um, And this like coincides with like when Roger Ebert on his blog talks about video games not being R.I.P. Yes, it's all a bit like old hat. But Citizen Kane kind of became this like shorthand for like just the key we need to like legitimize ourselves as an art form. What's the Citizen Kane? So people begin this kind of search through the history of video games to find what that one that one masterpiece is that mm-hmm. one thing that is just summarizes the entire art form and changes everything um but so much of like that discussion was the most like it's very like derivative and a lot of these people don't actually understand why citizen kane is usually the greatest film of all time and or at least like was when people would talk about it called the greatest film yeah of all time which I mean, to me, most of like those discussions, or at least whenever I hear people talk about it, comes down to just like Citizen Kane is a movie that brought and kind of synthesized together this new understanding of cameras and projectors as machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like most like video games, like what's the Citizen Kane of games? Like, I don't know. Most people were just like, oh, it's Bioshock. Yeah. Because I like it, and that's why. <laughs> yeah, I think what I was always told in like film studies classes uh, is that Citizen Kane, you had to respect it even if you didn't like it because it summed up the like first 50 years of the medium and, like you said, sort of synthesized all these techniques and stuff. And also because it sort of brought together all of the other mediums that cinema kind of came out of. You know, since Orson Welles was working in theater and working in radio – um, and then came into cinema. So he's bringing this understanding of like other arts, but also fusing them with like real innovation in technique and style. Yeah. I mean, so much to me also of Citizen Kane, whenever you look back at it, is like seeing how much they just take from other art forms. Like they just, I mean, if you look at like modernist photography that had already happened kind of before Citizen Kane mm-hmm. was made, you can see like, so many of these like camera placements and angles and and techniques of of shooting photography were just kind of like taken wholesale and applied Mm -hmm. to the story i also wonder if maybe there's a part of like the kind of resistance to kane and wells sometimes or the the questioning of it maybe has something to do with like i don't know i feel like there's a lot of times so like in cinema and film discourse a like resentment of theatricality Um, And like, it's like a bad thing if like a movie feels like a filmed play, Um, which like Mm -hmm. that's definitely something I feel, you know, I feel like I want cinema to be something kind of distinct and not something where I'm like, this should have been a novel, this should have been a play, etc. But I do feel like maybe people have beef with him because he came from theater. And I think there is sort of an I do think there is like, you know, he's like, obviously very... (laughs) sounds redundant to say somebody's a cinematic filmmaker but i feel like he he is like you know very formally innovative and creative but there is also just something about it maybe his performance style as an actor 
the way he works with actors, the use of prosthesis and like mise-en-scene and stuff where it feels sometimes like you feel the origins in theater a little bit. And I feel like maybe sometimes Mm -hmm. people are like, I want like pure cinema, you know, I want something that's like, you know, photographic and like not also rooted in like acting performance. I don't know. Yeah. It's funny though. While I mentioned a second ago, the topic of like the citizen Kane of games, which at this point is kind of a meme. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm friends with like one of the writers who kind of like started talking about the citizen Kane of games back then. And he actually told me the backstory on this whole thing. Cause I think he was the first one to publish the words like the citizen Kane of video games. And the reason that he wrote an article about something being the citizen Kane of video games is because he was like working with like a major TV outlet and trying to review just like a game getting re-released and said that it was a really big deal. And the producer was like, well, our audience is old people. So can you call it the citizen Kane of games? (laughs) And like, that's where that understanding came from was with citizen Kane kind of functioning as this thing that old people understand as like art cinema. Damn. And just like the shorthand for just like a classic. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's become just like this synonym or shorthand placeholder type thing um, for like greatness or genius or or high art. Um, But also that that I don't know that phrasing looking back now, no one really uses it. But that phrasing uh, also, I think, summarizes something that we've talked about on this podcast before, which is like that whole like games or art movement always viewed or you know is always kind of this like attempt to like legitimize yourself as an art form by referring to like previous art forms Mm -hmm. and their kind of like genre or not genre but medium defining um kind of works and it always is like retrospective and looking back but nobody ever asks the question like what's the flappy bird of movies (laughs) what is the tetris of movies or anything like that god oh my god i'm trying to riff with you and think of like some other ridiculous examples it's fine originally when i was thinking about this i was thinking about like what's the angry birds of movies but we got that we got two of those what's the like chocolate rain or charlie the unicorn of movies Jeez. What's the like I can has cheeseburger of movies oh. or all your bases are belong to me. I think the all your bases thing is like, like, I don't know. I, my mind goes to like Admiral Akbar. <laughs> all your bases are belong to me is like the Lumiere actuality of uh, memes. Jeez. But I think that fucking re- kill me. That's the problem, though, with this kind of thing (laughs) of like asking, like, what's the Citizen Kane of games is that it's always in retrospect instead of maybe like viewing like older works of like cinema Uh or something like that in like a forward thinking mindset. I mean, that's something that was really interesting to me. I mentioned watching a lot of Fritz Lang movies earlier and his movies play like so modern, his understanding of action and movement and like structure and everything like that. I want I feel so like i feel like a really strong connection between them and video games and even virtual reality Mm -hmm. i think he has like a very very strong like hold 
on what yeah. makes a lot of those future like image forms really compelling. No, totally. I mean, I, I've said this to you before, you know, like not on the podcast, but I think that's why like people so often compare Paul W.S. Anderson to Fritz Lang and why so much of Paul W.S. Anderson's work feels like it kind of reflective of Lang uh, in its sort of spaces and, and kind of architecture because PWSA is a gamer. Yeah, <laughs> he gets it. Um, I honestly a John Carpenter, too. Maybe I feel like I could see a little Lang in him. And also a, also a gamer. It's sad that Fritz Lang was not alive in the age of gaming. Um, but when I watch his movies, I like find so many just like I my brain makes so many little quips about like Hideo Kojima. I feel like there are two kinds of uh, gamer auteurs to speak on, you know, filmmakers who game, which I wonder mm-hmm. Orson Welles, what games would he like? Um, I feel like he probably played a lot of like he probably played a lot of games himself whether it's a crossword puzzle or mahjong i feel like i could imagine him like in the 80s like getting an arcade machine and like getting kind of obsessed with it and like somebody comes over to his house and and is like trying to like write something with him and he's just like captivated by like uh uh i could see him getting really into like that like Atari Star Wars vector graphics cabinet, maybe. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what I was thinking. I was trying to think of, I keep trying to think of like early arcade games and I can't, but the like, you know, the like. Maybe Tempest. He could get into that little, they had that little turn dial to control where the, the spider was on the tube. Or maybe he was like really into Frogger. Uh, that kind of checks out to me. I don't know why. <laughs> but anyways, I was going to say, I feel like there are two kinds of gamer auteurs. There's like the John Carpenter pwsa side of it where it's like very interested in the spatial kind of relationships and dynamics that are defined in games and that are distinct from cinema and then there's like the steven spielberg gamer auteur side where it's just like the kind of pure spectacle and experience and emotion of game storytelling yeah steven spielberg movies just feel like cutscenes. I mean, Adventures of Tintin is literally feature-length cutscene. <laughs> Ready Player One as well. Have I ever told on Mike my story about seeing the Adventures of Tintin? I don't think so. So I saw it with my mom uh, in high school because I was lame. And this like literal flock of nuns shows up during the trailers, sits down next to us. Like 10 nuns on a field trip to see Adventures of Tintin. I wonder, like, I don't know. I kind of wonder if they nuns. were like ten nuns for ten, ten for mm-hmm. ten at. Uh, I kind of wonder, like, I don't know if I imagined that they were like from France or something, and they really loved the comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would expect that nuns would be very quiet and respectful moviegoers, but they were some of the rowdiest people I have ever seen in a movie theater. They were just living it up, laughing at everything with Tintin and the fucking dog, just like time of their life. Like I wish Stevie could have seen it, you know, yeah. he would have been so proud. Um, so, so happy that his movie made these nuns happy. Oh my God. I'm trying to think if I had any like final notes about the big mank 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 explaining yeah i think one thing that's kind of interesting we already talked a little bit about david fincher but there's you know several times that either he makes a movie that is kind of directly related to current events 
or people kind of like ascribe that onto it. I mean, the other big one is the social network, uh, you know, about the creation mm-hmm. of Facebook and this movie that over the course of like the 10 years since it's been out, I feel like people, uh, I don't know, as like there became like a widespread distaste for Facebook, especially in like 2016, when when people like blame Facebook as one of the cohorts uh, that resulted in like mm-hmm. election meddling and, you know, fake news kind of being explicitly tied to Facebook as a platform. Um, but I mean, after that, a lot of people started watching social networking again and being like, man, this Jesse, I- or not Jesse Eisenberg, this Mark Zuckerberg guy is not that great of a dude. But I feel like, I mean, we talked about this a couple days ago, I think, after we watched Mank, but you mentioned that that kind of like, I don't know, that kind of like premonition that people ascribe to the movie, like, mm-hmm. I mean, years later, feels less strong and more like naive and maybe coincidental. Absolutely. I mean, you bringing up this this part of it in the social network almost gave me a new lens to think about Mank through. Um, I don't know who tweeted this, but my friend Graham uh, sent in a chat where in this this tweet that said that like Mank is about like realizing like in your 60s that you basically just like been sitting by your whole life and like not acting on your political ideals and just kind of like letting society fall apart. Um, even though you recognize it's wrong or even if you even if you've maybe like participated and enabled it a little bit. Um, and I wonder almost if like you can take this sort of like mank working, you know, in these newsreels almost as like Fincher's some kind of like weird reckoning with the social network, um, because obviously that movie is deeply, deeply critical of of Zuckerberg and of Facebook Um But I do feel like, you know, especially like right after that movie came out, there was almost a sort of like Jordan Belfort effect of like, you know, people were like, oh, you know, he's a villain. He's a heel. He's a horrible guy. But kind of like admiring him as an like an entrepreneur figure and like relishing in in like how uh, mean, you know, that character was and sort of like glorifying him a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, And I feel like, you know, like like you just said, you know social network feels a little it doesn't have as much bite anymore you know facebook what what facebook means in our society has changed so much you know well i mean when that movie was made and so much of what it deals in is allegorizing like an online friendship network up against like the way that it impacted the relationships of the people who resulted Mm -hmm. in it being made not at all about you know, kind of like the way the information that spread on there and how that, you know, the platform changes the information. No. So I feel like the thing is, is like, obviously, you know, like, um, I don't know, the social network is just kind of the tip of the iceberg because it identifies this huge issue of like the rampant misogyny that like built a lot of these platforms and, and online spaces. And that has informed so much of social media. It like identifies that. And that's obviously a really defining issue of the past 10 years with like Gamergate and, and fucking everything like that. But it doesn't really make these larger connections and the sort of like, you know, it doesn't foresee anything with kind of like disinformation 
Um, Peter Thiel just like gets mentioned, you know, very quickly at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, There's and there's no other really explicit other than like it being the product of kind of like upper class American society um, in, you know, Harvard education and stuff like there's no real sort of like critique of kind of power necessarily beyond like this guy is like shitty. This, this like white dude is shitty to people in his life and, and hates women. It doesn't really go beyond the individual sort of critique of Zuckerberg. And I feel like maybe by inserting some stuff about fake news into Mank, David Fincher is almost kind of trying to like address things that he didn't see and that Sorkin didn't see. Mm-hmm. Um, when they when they tackled Facebook, I don't know. It's also interesting remembering that Fincher was like on the um, the Steve Jobs movie for a while. I would have been kind of interested uh, to see that. Um, also, on the note of Fincher, I was going through his like. There's literally a Wikipedia page called David Fincher Unrealized Projects because he had so many things he was attached to yeah. that fell through. Like most recently, World War Z two which it kind of feels like he just dashed Mank off because he like dedicated all this time to World War Z2. Then it didn't really happen. Part of the reason why people say it, it got canceled is because China apparently like put a ban or like is limiting the number of movies with zombies in them, which like honestly, probably a good thing. Yeah, that I think that's that's good for everybody. Yeah. Um so that's part of the like why they say that movie got scrapped, but also nobody was really like wanting to see that. I mean, I was kind of interested in like David Fincher, World War Z too, but also I think in retrospect, like that whole kind of, I don't know that that book and like a lot of it and the movie and stuff seem kind of like racist and like colonialist and stuff. And yeah, the Brad Pitt movie, it's like some resident evil five type, like, like race tied to yeah. like the zombie outbreak. The hordes. Yeah you know like um but but uh you know he was attached to two different projects um about chefs um both of which after he left those projects ended up with Bradley Cooper in the lead role in the mid 2000s he was supposed to uh make a movie based off of Kitchen Confidential the Anthony Bourdain memoir is that is did that result in burnt no um, actually, I didn't know this, but early Bradley Cooper role was in the TV, the short-lived TV show of Kitchen Confidential. He played Anthony Bourdain, basically, um, oh, Bradley wow. Cooper in like 2004. I didn't know that got a, an actual adaption with the same name. Yeah, there were like five episodes or something. And, or adaptation. And Fincher had left it at that point. And then later, Fincher was working on an adaptation of the book or like or the life experience of some chef, which he then left and then it became burnt and Bradley Cooper was okay. attached. So weird, just little anecdote about Finchy. Yeah. It's interesting though. I uh, mentioned that I watched the game and that was like the last movie of David Fincher's directing filmography that I hadn't seen. And it's weird looking back at like the social network and, and even Mank after seeing that. Cause that movie is very like, it feels like he's like trying out like a 70s paranoid thriller mode Mm -hmm. in some ways with like moments that like directly reference parallax view and similar vibes to like shampoo you even brought up shampoo uh in talking about the um like some of the election 
scenes and stuff like yeah. that and mank um but also it was interesting going through those because it kind of made me see david fincher as someone who really like identifies himself as like like new hollywood icon genre director mm-hmm. like hal ashby or pacula mm. also one kind of thing about like to you know to the sort of political corniness of Mank that I forgot to mention. Mank literally says like every vote counts at one point. And he also says the difference between socialism and communism is that in socialism, everybody shares the wealth and communism, everybody shares the poverty. And I feel like David Fincher is like, I'm a democratic socialist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not one of those communists. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't have, uh, I'm a, I, I, you know, I think I'm mostly manked out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with mank. Yeah. Creative partnership ended with mank. Now Orson Welles is my new best friend. Um, oh, I do feel like we should share this incredible anecdote that was re- relayed to us. One thing we didn't mention, this is also like what the fourth or something collaboration between David Fincher and the musicians Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, um, who scored this movie. Mm-hmm. But that kind of sets up the story that a friend told us. Yeah. So our, our good friend Ben um, at Cat Food Party, if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's a good follow. I hope I didn't dox him. I hope he's OK with me saying his handle. Uh, but he uh, we met uh many moons ago doing college radio together um and he'll intermittently like every once in a while fill fill in on our radio show or something um so he was doing that the other night he was telling us that um he was playing some like a ambient kind of drone track uh with a lot of noise and feedback that i think was like it's like by another musician and like the keyboardist of nine inch nails or something yeah, um, there's a Trent Reznor connection. Yeah, so Trent Reznor connection. Um, and this dude calls into the show and is like, hey, man, like, I think there might be something wrong with your transmitter. You know, I'm not hearing any music. I'm just hearing a lot of feedback and a lot of noise. You know, might you might want to check on that. And Ben is like, oh, actually, you know, that's the, the song that I'm playing right now. You know, it's this sort of experimental thing um, by this Nine Inch Nails keyboardist. And the guy's like, wow, you know, I've heard of using uh, noise and feedback in like a bridge or a chorus, but never the whole song. <laughs> and so the guy hangs up and then he calls back like 10 minutes later um, and he's like, Oh, you know, I think your transmitter's all fine. You know, like the next song started playing and it sounded totally clear. Um, but I just wanted to say, you know, you were talking about Nine Inch Nails. And uh, I was wondering, have you heard this new Trent Reznor soundtrack? It's called the Mank soundtrack. You know, it's pretty good. I think you should check it out. You should check out Mank. <laughs> it's bringing the people together. It's literally bringing people together in these times they should have dropped it on manksgiving you know um yeah they should imagine if they tried to to make mank like an irishman type thing everybody watching just this like movie without having seen citizen kane (laughs) together yeah and and they're just bloated on the couch can't leave (laughs) al pacino saying cocksucker (laughs) But I don't know. It's funny to imagine just like Mank existing in the real world and Mank being a thing that like 
Somebody's just like, let me load up the Mank soundtrack on Spotify, put it on while I do my yeah. work. That's hilarious. I literally, I literally tried. I played the first song and I was like, this is even worse without the movie. I can't listen to this. I'd work to the Tenet soundtrack. Yeah. I'd work to the Travis Scott song. That's what was wrong with Mank. It didn't have a Travis Scott song. See, that's the thing that I think made me understand Tenet was when I listened to that afterward and I was like, oh, I... This is the missing puzzle piece. Straight up. Mm-hmm. There was a great meme that was like the puzzle brain and the missing piece is Tenet. I'm like, that's how I really felt after I watched Tenet. I felt whole. Yeah, it's a it's a balm for the soul. Truly. Yeah. But I think that's all we really have to say about Mank. Do we have any announcements or anything? Not really. I mean, I guess we could for the first time ever potentially like announce what our next episode subject is going to be because we know what it is. We're working on it, researching. Yeah, we've been working on it and then we're like, we can just we can just record a little one for the for the discourse as it is. For the, give the girlies something to listen to for the mankheads out there. Um, yeah. But uh, do you, yeah, do you want to introduce our, our next episode topic? Yeah, so we had talked for a little bit about, or we'd kind of just like had a list of ideas and everything. And one of them, when I was looking back through that, I realized I'd actually seen a good bit for. Um, and that also, I mean, we could talk about in some some unique ways, I think, was movies that are made in the first person perspective. Um, so it's it's going to be a hardcore hotbox. Maybe we'll get Henry in here we've uh also you know there are plenty of lists on letterboxd if you look at them and everything but i mean though it's a little bit gimmicky it's one that's been tried out several times throughout uh a lot of different phases of like cinema and filmmaking um but yeah i mean i'm pretty excited about it we just have a couple more movies and a little bit more research we need to do for it but definitely i hopefully you know should be out before the end of the year would like to get you know a couple more episodes in before 2021 hits us yeah, and that's when season two starts. Get the new battle pass. I mean, hey, maybe that's when we have to drop the Patreon. That's the paddle, the battle pass of podcasts. It really is. The, yeah, that's when you get your your DLC, your Discord perks. God, all that stuff. Bonus episodes that does... are just uh, loot crates. Dang, Patreon does uh, imply a certain regularity, though. It is true. It's it's, you know, p- perhaps table for further discussion, but I don't know. Fe- we'll feel it out. We'll see if if anybody's interested, maybe. And yeah, the 420 tier. Yeah. If you'd like to pay me enough money to get like a like a Taco Bell meal every once in a while. Yeah. You know, maybe enough money to like pay for a URL or something or like, hey, even, you know, pay for the SoundCloud Pro subscription. That would be sick we'll see we'll see if uh the patreon gets posted or anything like that but yeah keep your keep your thumbs tapping that podcast catcher for this this new episode that'll probably come out keep refreshing that rss feed but yeah uh until then nathan where can people find you on the internet you can find me at trillmore girls what about you asap sunscreen uh the podcast is at hotbox the cinema uh you know you can email hotbox the cinema at gmail.com um but yeah i mean all the contact info everything like that you can find on the twitter page yeah we're out there not hard to find mm-hmm. 
there's only one hot box. You know, there are some other there are some other weed movie podcasts that I've become aware of recently. Yeah. Um, but but you know, it's a crowded market. It's a yeah. it's a smoky room. Yeah, you gotta get in at the ground floor. Anyways, until next time, keep on token. Oh, <laughs> my